You're listening to Church of the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as service times, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchoftheoaks.com. If you have a copy, a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, beginning in, in verse 32 today. We're, we've been walking through the book of Acts together, and, and as we do that, 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 that song that we just sang, above, I mean, that, that, that refrain there, above all else, I adore your name. It was one of those passages that kind of um, makes us analyze like how our lives are reflecting the things that we sing. You know, it's, easy. it's one thing to sing, like, above all else, I adore your name. And we come to texts sometimes that challenge us on that and they're like, really call us into question and say, like, let's examine my life. Let's look at the way I'm living. Let's look at the way I'm laying myself down for the kingdom and let's, let's see how my life lines up with some statements like that. So that's where we're going to be, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. So at this point in Acts, we've been walking through this. If this is your first week of the series in Acts, we've been walking through the book. Kind of slowly and intentionally and, and looking for different things, looking for the way that the Spirit's at work, the way that spirits and the Spirit empowers believers to proclaim Christ and when walking through these things. And we get to this point here where Luke kind of stops at the, the flow of the story so far, and he, he kind of zooms in and gives you a peek under the hood of the local church. At this point, there's just, there's just, there's just one church. Like, there's, there's, there's only the one. There's not like a first Baptist and like a second Baptist. It's just the one, you know. And so, but if we, if we walk through the story, there's been thousands and thousands of people who have come to faith. And they're all just like together in this one place trying to figure out how to do church together. All right? From the, from the get-go. There's no, there's no division yet. And so, and when he does, he starts talking about, when Luke does this zoom-in thing for us, he, t- he, he addresses an issue um, that, that often gets overlooked by us a lot. It doesn't get a lot of, a lot of air time, doesn't get talked about a lot, doesn't get discussed because it's one of the issues that no one would, no one would disagree with. Like, it's one of those issues that cognitively all of us are on board with, all of us understand, all of us are fine with it, but then practically how to do it is where the, the problem kind of comes in sometimes, right? So we don't talk about it a lot because everybody's like, yeah, aren't we past this? Of course we agree with this. I mean, yeah, this is, we know this has got to be a part of who we are, right? So this issue, it, it slides into the background sometimes, and the practicality of it gets forgotten, and then we're all the worse for it. The church is all the worse for it. And it's an issue that God cares way more about than I think sometimes we as people do. Because he talks about it a lot and we don't talk about it very much. And so there's got to be something, something there. There's got to be an issue that we've got to hold high if we want our church, if we want Oaks, or if we want the church collectively to make an impact in the kingdom. And so the issue we're going to be looking at today is, is the issue of, of unity. It's the issue of unity. And now uh, this, this even when I say that, I'm like already worried about it. You're going to check out and be like, oh, that's sweet. Everybody likes unity. We all want to, we're all going to be united, right? It's one big happy family, you know? And we all agree with that. We all want to be those kind of people. And like nobody's going to argue like, no, I love disunity. Let's go with that. You know, like nobody's going to be on the other side of that issue. But practically, how we work that thing out, that's where the, that's where the issue actually lies. We think unity is cute. I, 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 when I think about the word unity, like my gut reaction, just being honest with you, is... That's cute, you know. Like, I want to. I don't want to be. Dis- I. I want to be. Dis- I, even in, like as, as churches, I think we want to be described with like way more awesome terms, like bold, or deep, or strong. Like we want. We want those kind of things to define us. And the Lord's like, 
Now, I just wanted you to be united. I don't need you to be strong. I got plenty of that. You know, like I, like, I, don't, I don't need you to be bold. I can give you that. Like, I, need, I want you to be united. So when we think about a church universal or a local church, believers who want to make an, want to make an impact for the Great Commission, if we lack unity... We all know this. If we lack unity, we, we're, we, we act like and we're perceived by the outside world like a family in a fight. You ever been over at somebody else's house for dinner and they get in a tiff? You know, things get awkward real fast. Remember, like maybe you're in high school or something, you went over to a friend's house and, and like mom, the mom and dad are like kind of at odds and they're not really talking, a little bit of cold shoulders going on. And you're like, I should not be here. <laughs> you know, like I got to get out of here. Nothing's more awkward than that when you walk into the, the middle of a family in a fight. And that's what the church sometimes I think looks like to the outside world. I think that's what a local church can look like to the outside world. When you, they're coming over for dinner, like I want to check this thing out. Let me see how this is going. And they show up to a family that's not united that isn't acting like a family. I think that's one of the reasons we lack effectiveness in the world sometimes is because sometimes we act like a family that's in a fight. All right, so unity is essential for the mission. God's passionate about the unity of his church. If you don't believe me, I'll give you a couple of passages real quick. John 17, verse 20, says this. Just Jesus praying. He says, I don't ask for these only, but I also ask for those who are going to believe in me through their word. I'm saying, I'm not talking just the believers I got right now. I'm talking about people that are going to hear what the apostles teach, and they're going to come to faith. He's saying, I'm praying for them that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that there also may be in us. He's praying for unity among us that's just as tight as the unity between the Father and the Son. So that the world, (laughs) this is so that, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So that unity's got to exist among the family because if not, then it's going to look like the sons of fake. See why unity is essential? It's got to be there, right? It's, it's, it has to be there. And they believe that you've sent me. Ephesians 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, as Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, all gentleness, all patience, bearing with one another in love. All those things happen in among community. There's one body. There's one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's like, there's supposed to be this oneness, this connectedness, this interdependence, this family. So this morning as we look in Acts, we're going to look at this passage's story. We're going to see first how, how we can establish unity, how, how unity is established among believers. Like what is, how, how do we actually get there? Because you look at the rest of the world, unity is not a part of things. So what's unique about the church that makes unity possible? How is unity established? And then we're going to look at how we can, how we can experience unity among each other, like how, how that can actually work out for us, practically what that looks like. And then we're going to look at how we can wreck it, if you're so inclined, right? how you can wreck unity. And as we do that, we're going to see two stories that, that Luke gives us to illustrate how all this looks together. So that's a lot to cover, how unity is established and how we can experience unity together and how we can wreck unity. And we've got to have two stories in the middle of it. So we're going to go kind of quick this morning. So you've got to you know, put, those, put those like sharp eyes on this morning. You've got to dig deep in that caffeine store that you've got going on. Like that's what we're going to need this morning. So first, all right, so how, how is unity established? You've already sort of touched on it, but verse 32, it says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. How are several thousand people united with one heart and one soul? How is that possible? 
It was just simple. They, they, had, they had the heart and soul of Jesus. Like they, they had trusted their lives to Christ. They had been remade by him. They had trusted their eternity to the person of Jesus. Their faith is in him. And so their identity had been changed. They were no longer like Jews and Greeks. And they weren't slaves and free. They were just one people. And their, their identity had been shifted from whatever their background, whatever, whatever their other identifying factors were. And I was like, no, no, I'm just, I'm just found in Christ. This is who I am now. And because of this common identity in Christ, this common faith in Christ, they're on the same team. And actually, more than that, it says that when Christ died for us, he makes us sons and daughters of the king, and so now they're family. They're not acquaintances. They're not people that show up together and worship together on Sunday morning. They're, they're family. So God established the church. He brought people together under the banner of Christ, and then he gave, them, gave us that task of protecting the unity of it. I suppose there's, a, there's an intention here. There's an ideal here. Philippians 2. We, we, we just studied Philippians last semester. Philippians 2, verse 1. We talked about this already a few months ago. But it says that if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If I have the mind of Christ... If my heart is beating for the cause of Christ, if I'm engaged in the mission of Christ, if I'm laying down my life for, for the renown of Christ, and so are you, then we got a lot in common. All right? And there's this, this, this common identity, this common faith in Jesus that allows unity to exist in a way that is, is unique among all other communities on earth. There is no other identifying factor, no other banner you can wave, nothing else you can, like no nation, no nothing, all right, that where you can, no, where, where you have this commonality together that's like the name of Jesus, because he's remade you, he's given you his heart. And as people collectively who have the same heart now in Christ, we get to walk in this radical and ridiculous unity, if my life and your life have both been found in Christ. All right, so so. In light of that, in light of all the things that you and I hold in common in the name of Jesus, what, it, what could possibly be so important that we could be divided, that we could actually be at odds at each other, where there would be that infighting and there would be that, that competitive spirit that sometimes shows up in the body, like the, the, the universal church? Like, like, what could be so important to override the unity that you and I have in Christ? Sometimes when I phrase it like that, it makes a lot of things that I hear Christians squabbling over sound pretty ridiculous. But I get guilty of the same stuff, don't you? Every once in a while you hear some of that disunity come out of your mouth, and there's a little bit of squabble in there, and you're like, where is that coming from? What is so important that it overrides the unity that we have in Christ? Okay, so we get that. Like if you're a believer, if you're a Christian for a while, you get that there's this commonality in Jesus that, that makes unity possible. But like the practicality is, is really what I want to like sit on a little bit today because practically how we work that out matters a lot for Oaks. Matters a lot for those of us who have said we're going to be a part of this church because we're at the, we're at the starting line. We're a little bit past it, but we're basically at the starting line of this thing. And if we want to be a church that walks in unity, we got to know how to do this together. We got to know what behaviors that we can exhibit to, to, to foster unity, to, to make this actually happen, not just be a cute thing that we say we believe. All right. So the passage goes on. It says full number of those who believe were one heart and soul. And it says this, it says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33 says, with great power, the apostles were given the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There's that common teaching. There wasn't a needy person among them for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as anybody had need. 
And you get the first example. So it says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, native of Cyprus. He went and sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he's laid it at the apostles' feet. So you get this picture of what unity looks like. You get the behaviors that it was. You get some of the examples of how this actually played out together. And honestly, it just sounds like they just treated each other like family. Right? Like if you're just going to summarize that, like think about this. Like people are selling stuff for each other. They're making sure there's no needs. Like everybody's okay. Like everybody's just for one another the same way Christ is for us. It just sounds like they just treated each other like family. Their faith led them to love one another deeply and truthfully. And that love that they had for one another led to some radical generosity. That was a part of it. They're, they're laying their lives down, laying their stuff down. And that makes sense because generosity is evidence that you love people. Like I, 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 dude, there's a lot of y'all in here I love, but I'm not going to spend as much money on you at Christmas as I do, Jessica. It's just not going to happen, all right? It's just not going to happen. There's a difference between like that. You know, there's, but that, 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 the deeper that love is, it, 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 I mean, Jessica's like, hey, I want to go to the beach next weekend. I'm like, all right, I'll sell a car so you can go to the beach. I don't know. Like, let's go. I, that's just something in you, the, the people that you deeply love, you'll sacrifice for, Right? Their deep love that they had in the Lord gave them a deep love for one another, and it led to this radical generosity. It says, 32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Who shares like that? Who does that? Just family. That's it. The only people that do that is family. I, I, I don't, like I, I don't want to let you borrow my power tools because it's going to come back bent and dirty, and I just don't want you to have it. I mean, I'll probably say yes because I have to, but I don't want to. Right? I mean, that's, that's the way this works. Doesn't this make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? They were willing to share everyone. No one claimed any of his own possessions was his own. The other day, my neighbor was across the street, and he, I could hear his, his battery clicking, you know? Like, yeah, I went outside, and it's like, I had a meeting coming up, but I had like 20 extra minutes. So I go across the street, like, hey, man, you need to jump? Yep. I don't know this guy super well, so I get to get my forerunner and go over there, you know, and I'm, my forerunner's kind of like my baby. Like, I love my forerunner. I don't let people eat in it. It's a whole thing, right? Um, it, I don't know why I can, get, I can go mud riding in it, but I can't eat in it. doesn't seem to make sense, but it makes sense to me, so just roll with it, okay? So I take it over there, and I'm trying to jump this guy off. The battery won't take a charge, and he's like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, his wife was gone, and like... He's just stranded, doesn't have a battery for the thing. It won't take a charge. You can't jump him off. I've got a meeting. And I hear this like little nudge in me that's like, just give him your car. I was like, no. Hard pass. I'm not giving this dude my car. I don't know this guy. Like, I, don't, I know you lived 15 feet from me, but like, no. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying. I'm like, I'm going to jump this thing off is the last thing I do. Okay. I'm doing the thing where you jump it and you rev the, you rev the engine. Like that helps. It doesn't help, I don't think. Right? Just do it. Anything I can. I give this guy my car. And eventually I'm like, look, man. I'll leave you my keys. I'll drive the terrible beat-up Jeep. You know, I'll, I'll take the Jeep. You take the forerunner. You're going to get a battery and do the thing. And, like, it killed me. And the dude was just going to drive, like, two miles down the road and get a battery and come back, and I'm acting like I'm going to die. Like, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Maybe this is just me, but this sounds hard. Doesn't it? To like actually do that. It's cute to talk about unity. We're all of one mind in Jesus and yay Jesus, right? But like no one considered any of their own stuff to be their own because they counted everybody to be family. Radical generosity becomes the norm when Christ gets elevated above our stuff. When our identity in Christ, our commonality in Christ becomes like the most preeminent thing in our lives, our stuff falls way down the ladder. 
And if our stuff is, is above Christ in our pecking order and our priority order, I'm going to protect my stuff over the unity I have with other believers, then that says something about where we stand with Christ. This, this was and is the ideal for all of us, all the time, sharing all that we have, not out of compulsion, not because somebody's making us, but out of just genuine love. Verse 34 says, There wasn't a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everybody as they had need. Like, nobody's making them do that. This isn't communism or something. They're just saying, look, if there's some needs, I've got some stuff I'm not using. I can sell some stuff to make sure that the needs are met. Like, I'll I'll make that happen. These three people were united to the point of breaking down um, us and them. You know? They're, they're, they're united in Christ to the point that us and them stopped, stopped existing in the way that it normally does. They were willing to give up their stuff for the sake of someone else. They're treating each other like family and not extended family, like, like immediate family. Can you imagine a scenario, like if you're married or just you can imagine being married, can you imagine a scenario where your spouse like didn't have enough to eat? Or your spouse like, didn't have enough to pay their medical bills. Your spouse didn't have a ride somewhere or didn't have help with child care, needed some help in some ministry area. And like, you're just, your spouse like, has some legit needs, whether it's resource needs, it's time needs, it's energy needs. And you're like, hate it for you. I'm good. I got my, pet, my, my bills paid. I'm, I hate it for you, man. That's, that's rough. You ain't going to do that to your spouse. Like, there's no conceivable scenario where you would treat somebody in your immediate family like that. You would do whatever you have to do to make sure that they're taken care of the same as well as you're taken care of because that's us. But them over there, I don't know about them. That's them. You've got to handle your own stuff. Of course you don't. It's, it's family. If Christ has made us sons and daughters of the king, there's, there's something about us that we're family as well. And if Christ matters more than our stuff, if Christ matters more than my calendar, if Christ matters more than how I'm feeling that day and my energy level and my preferences about the things that I want to do, if Christ matters more than those things, then radical generosity is the result of that. It says that these, these affluent landowners, they're selling property to meet needs. There's, affluence is a blessing, and it's a responsibility. It's a, it's a gift to be used. If God's giving you affluence in, in some area of your life, like that, what's the point of it if it's not to be used? And praise God that he does that. Praise God that he's giving people affluence in different kind of areas. But that's a gift to be used for the furtherance of the kingdom. Like adults in the room, we're probably doing better than the college students financially, I hope. All right? We're probably doing better than the college students in the room financially because we're not college students anymore. It's like compared to them, we're all affluent. Welcome to the club. You know, you've arrived. It's great, you know, on this side of things, right? So, like, there's a, there's, a, there's, some, there's, a, there's a role for us to play in that, to use the resources that God's given us, uniquely given us, to make sure that we can do what we're called to do, to have an impact in our city, an impact on the camps, an impact on the world. And I pray all the time that God would make, give, give Church of the Oaks enough resources, not just to pay our own bills, which we're, we're kind of working that direction. We're sort of getting there, right? Not just to pay our own bills, but that enough that we can be radically generous with the people that we're sending out. So that first church team we always talking about, that first church plant team, we're going to stand up here and pray over and cry over, and they're going to leave us, and it's going to break my heart. Like I want to, I want to send them well. I don't want them having to work so hard on fundraising that they can't do the ministry that God's called them to do. I want to send them out well. If we have international missionaries coming, and they're going to go be sent out all over the world. I don't want them worrying about having to run around and try to fundraise. I just want us to take care of it, which means those of us who have the resources to do that. We're going to leverage our lives. We're going to make, they're going to put Christ above our stuff and we're going to leverage what he's given us 
the cause of the kingdom. Now, college students, you're time rich. I know you don't feel like you're time rich, but you're time rich, okay? Like, I had a, I had a, I had a guy, I was, he was one of my leaders when, when I was in college, and I was like a sophomore, and I've told a lot of college students this story. I was a sophomore in college, and I'm in the car with this guy, he's got like four kids, he's got a mortgage, he's got a full-time job, he's like serving in a church, and he's spending time with me on top of that. I'm like, in his car, he's giving up his time to spend time with me, and I'm whining about how busy I am. And dude, like, we get to a stoplight, and the guy, he looks at me, he just, stoplight, red light, and he just turns and looks at me, like, full face in the car. If anybody does that to you in a car, you know that's intense, right? And he just turns and looks at me in the passenger seat, and he goes, Britton, you have more time right now than you're ever going to have the rest of your life. You're going to get married, then you got to take care of her. Then you're going to get a job, and you got to take care of them. They're going to a house, and you got to take care of it. And you're going to get all these kids to stick in the house. you got to take care of all them. And then one day, they're going to have a bunch of grandkids, and they're going to want you to babysit all the time. It never ends, and one day you die. Then you can rest. I was like, I apologize. College students are time rich. You got more time right now than you're going to have the rest of your life. And even if you got to do two weeks of sorority stuff, after that, you're time rich, time rich okay? But like, it's, it's, there, there, there's more time there. So the same is true. So like, like the adults in the room, man, we, we have more resources. We have less time. College students have less resources. We have more time. We work together as family. We can get some stuff done if we're willing to leverage our time and our resources for the sake of the kingdom. So you get this example, verse 36, of, of Joseph called Barnabas. I mean, son of encouragement. I, I love that. So Joseph, uh, he comes up all across Acts as this wonderful man of God. Just keeps showing up over and over again. This wonderful man of God. Call him Barnabas because he's, he's, he's so encouraging, he got a nickname for it. No one is ever going to nickname me that. That's just not my skill set. It's not my build set. Like, I don't know what you would nickname me, but it's not going to be that, okay? But so, like, that's who he is. And he's also a guy with some affluence. He had a field, and so he decided to sell his field out of love for other people, and just gave it away, no strings attached. And he's saying, Luke is saying, be a Barnabas. Just be a Barnabas. There's not, like, you have a bunch of rules about unity or something. He's like, I don't, just treat people the way Barnabas treated people. If If you see a need, just meet a need. Don't, don't worry about how it affects you and how, like, how it's going to fit in your calendar or whatever and what the cost is going to be for you. Like, just be a guy like Barnabas. Use the God-given gift that he's given you to make things happen. So that's financial resources. Great, let's do that. If it's the gift of teaching, use it. If it's the gift of hospitality, use it. The gift of time, let's go. Like, you, leverage your time. If it's a gift of leadership or encouragement, like Lord knows we need it. Like, use the gifts that God's given you, including your financial resources, including your time, because those are the two we try to skip out on for the sake of Christ, all in response to who Jesus is and what he's done. We just got to be people like Barnabas. And then so we've seen how we establish unity in a church. We've seen um, how we experience that, how that looks as we treat each other like family. we got an example in Barnabas. And then we get the example of how we can wreck it. Chapter 5 begins like this. It says, but, but a man named Ananias with his, wife, with his wife Sapphira, he went and sold a piece of property too. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid at the apostles' feet. There's nothing wrong with that. Nobody's making this guy do anything. It's okay to sell part of a piece of property and only give some of the money. Like, that's, that's totally fine. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he was so shook, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came on all who heard it. The young men, they rose up and they wrapped him up and carried him out and they buried him. And after an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yep, that's right, that much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband, they're at the door. And they're going to carry you out too. Immediately she fell down dead at his feet and she breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That's a terrifying passage. That's one of those passages, if you're not walking through the book of Acts, you just skip that one. You can be honest. This is an example of how unity can be wrecked, a reminder that even in the most spirit-filled churches, the enemy is at work. To undermine unity, to undermine the gospel. And at first, you know, when you look at this, you read this story, every time I read this story, Ananias and Sapphira's sin, it seems just like drastically out of proportion with the consequence. Like when you read this, like just, just being honest, probably somewhere in your like, that seems way too harsh. Right? You're not nodding, but I know it's true. All right. So, like, what's, what's their sin? Or what did their actions show? Was it just a little, a little white lie, man? They said it would cost this much. It actually cost this much. They're trying to be generous. Like, get off their back, right? What's their sin? First, they're spiritual fakers. They're faking holiness. And God's not interested in the appearance of, of holiness. He knows our heart. He's not interested in, 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 in you coming before him and trying to pretend like everything's great and trying to pretend like you're walking in holiness and you're trying to walk in obedience and I've got it all together and I've got it, I'm, I'm, I'm knocking this out of the park. You're faking. You're faking for people around you to think of yourself like more highly and the God's over here like knowing the condition of your soul. They're spiritual fakers. On top of that, they're praise seekers. They wanted a reputation like Barnabas. Like, Barnabas is this guy, he's getting, he's getting nicknamed by the apostles, man. Like, he's, he's that kind of guy. They want to have a reputation like Barnabas, but they, don't want, they want it without the sacrifice. They want to get to be raised up. They want to get to be um, praised, but just don't want to actually do the things that Barnabas was doing. We can't get caught in the trap of seeking other people's approval. We can't show up and be a church with people, of people, trying to, trying to praise each other and trying to seek the praise of other people instead of seeking the praise of the Lord. They're praise seekers. Next, they're liars. They just lied together. And God hates lying. God takes lies as a personal affront because he's truth, and they're warping the truth. They're, they're liars. They're greedy. That verb kept back right there, that, 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 that means to embezzle. All right? They could not bring themselves to part with their stuff. There's greed in all of us. There's greed in me. Can't give in to that. They were deceivers. They planned this. They plotted this. All right? This wasn't like they just kind of showed up and they got kind of spooked or whatever. Like they, plot, they planned this in advance, how to deceive the apostles. That's what they did. Can't be plotters. It says they were used by Satan. The devil uses money to bring out the worst in people sometimes. The implication is that Satan used money to tempt them to sin, to weaken the church. This was one about them. This was about sowing disunity across the church. Satan was going to use them, their greed, their money, to tempt them to weaken the church. And the consequence of it was instant judgment. And that seems shocking, right? It does to me. It seems too extreme. Like, why, why is this so startling to us? 
It's probably the better question. Listen, anytime you come across something in Scripture where your, your, your perception of it is different than, than the Lord's, and you have to decide, all right? You have to make a decision at that point. If, if, if me and the Lord can't be right on something, if I'm looking at what God chose to do and I'm deeming this to be too extreme, then either he's right or I'm right. We both can't be right. So either the Bible is wrong and God is being unjust or my perspective on it's wrong. I'm always going to go with that one, Right? So if, if my perspective is wrong, like what's, my, what's wrong with my perspective when I come read the story of Ananias and Sapphira? I think it's shocking because we've bought into some lies. I think we've bought into the lie that sin is minor. In the, in the, in the, in the construct of, of community, in the local church, that we, you know, sin, sin's going to be a part of it. And sin's, you know, minor and, you know, whatever. And we're, we see a story where we're like shocked by the actual consequence of sin playing out. We've lost sight of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. It's shocking because we've minimized the offense. To minimize the offense, you have to minimize the one you're offending. So if you're going to minimize the offense, you've got to minimize the holiness of God. And you're like, God, can you not just be a little bit less holy today? This is small. Like, can you just have a little bit of not holiness over here just to accommodate for my little, my little sin stuff? And you get, get mad about the big stuff, the little stuff. You got, leave it alone. Just be a little bit less holy. I can't do that. I can't just hate the, the, the big sins by your determination, by my determination. It's not the way it works. The wages of sin is death, not a slap on the hand. So that's the first lie I think we buy. The second lie is that my sin just affects me. My sin's not just my sin. I know good and well that the position that I hold, like the enemy's against me and wants to drag me down, not just to tear me and my family up, but to tear our church up. I hope you're praying for me because like, that's, that's a pretty solid target to carry. You carry that same target. You're a part of the same body. You're part of the church. When God wrecks us, when sin wrecks any one of us, it drags all of us down. We think sin just affects me. It's just a singular person issue. It's not. If we're a part of one body, then it affects us all. Reminds me, I'm not above sin, and sin is never worth it. Third one, third, third lie I think we believe is that the church is kind of supposed to be a mess. The body of believers that are covenanted together to be the local church, like it's it's just kind of supposed to be a mess, and like we're accustomed to that, and we kind of get okay with that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be the body of Christ. The church is supposed to be holy. Like, like Christ died for us and then gave us this body together. We're supposed to be walking in, in holy, like holy, united together, lifting one another up when we're weak. And so when one slips, we raise that brother back up. Like There's supposed to be a holiness and a, and a joy and a, a righteousness among those who have been redeemed by the Lord. I think sometimes that's why the church as a whole seems to be losing effectiveness because a lot of, a lot of us, like our, our churches don't look a lot different than the rest of the world. You got to remember that in the Old Testament, like Israel grew accustomed to sin, made a lot of accommodations for sin, and eventually it led to their destruction. We're, yeah, we're people that are a mess. We're a bunch of sinners. We're sinners that have been saved by grace, given this light of the gospel, and we're to be walking in obedience with him. And yeah, we're going to slip up, slip up sometimes, but the call is not to be okay with our slip-ups. The call is to live lives glorifying God with all that we are. Can't, we can't buy that lie. One of the commentary writers I was looking at this week said this. He said, a dangerous holiness, a dangerous holiness is God's response to determined hypocrisy. A dangerous holiness is God's response to this determined hypocrisy. 
I think too many Christians just unconsciously hold to this moral therapeutic deism where it's just like that God is loving and he's helpful and is kind and that's it. And any attribute of God that is outside that definition of him gets out of bounds of who God is. And we create this fake God who's just like God in our little pocket, right? And he's going to take care of me and he's going to play genie. It's not who he is. When I think about holiness, I think about the sun, right? Like the sun outside, like that sun, you know? Not the sun, different, you know? So it's sun. And the sun's an incredible thing, right? The sun gives life to all that we have. It gives light to everything we see. It makes the, you know, makes the world go like that. We have to have the sun. Like there's an essential thing that, and there's a goodness to it. But if I go get out in the sun unprepared, get too close to that thing, it's dangerous. There's a holiness there. And if I go into the presence of the sun unprepared, in my, in my unpreparedness, like there's a danger to me there. There's a holiness factor to the Lord that when we walk in, just blatant in our sin, as blatant in our rebellion, like there's a consequence for that. We can't make God so small that he fits in our pocket and we forget his holiness. So listen, Christ died to pay the consequence of our sin. Christ gave you his right. Like if you're a Christian, when you trusted Christ to be your savior, he took away your unrighteousness, set that aside, he paid for that, and then just imparted to you his righteousness. He's like, you're never going to sort this out. You're never going to be good enough. It's not going to work. You're not going to clean yourself up. So I'm just going to, I'm going to give you my perfection. And so then as a Christian, as, you, as somebody who's trusted Christ, you get to stand in the perfection of Jesus before the Father. And there is no shame. And there is no fear of destruction because he's taking care of it for you. So God is still loving, but he's still holy. And if we forsake that righteousness of Jesus and we just walk in here in our sin and just expect God to be okay with our hypocrisy and be okay with our selfishness and be okay with our sinfulness and then get confused when there's consequence with that, that's, that's not the way this works. He died to pay for our sin. He didn't, he didn't die to acquiesce to our sin. Listen, I needed the Savior. It's the whole point of Christianity. I needed a Savior. If you're a Christian in the room, you came to a point where you realized that you were such a mess that you needed a Savior. And Jesus did that work for you, did the work you never could do, like to, to forgive you, to wipe away your sin, and give you a new life in Christ. If you're not a Christian yet, and you came in this morning, and you know there's a lot of that baggage still on you, maybe you're still trying to earn it, maybe you're still trying to work towards all these things on your own, I just want to remind you that you, you're not going to get it done. You need someone else's righteousness to be given to you. You can take care of that this morning. Our band's going to come. They're going to lead us in a time of response. And there's, as they do that, there's just two things I want you to think about. There's some things that you probably need to pray through in response to this passage. And there's a few things you probably need to do. Okay, so if you want to jot a couple of things down, this is a good spot to do that. So there's a few things I want you to pray. One, I want you to pray that God would let you love people like Barnabas. Just start praying, like, God, help me to be like Barnabas. God, like, help me to love people well enough, to be a sacrifice people. Like, to, I just want to be a Barnabas. I don't want to be in essence fire. I don't want to be faking it. I don't want to be running around acting like I've got it all together when in reality I don't. I just want to be, I just want to be like Barnabas, who is like Christ. So would you pray that? Just pray that right there in your own heart and mind right now. Just, God, help me to be like Barnabas. Not faking it, not deceiving the people around me, but just help me to be like Barnabas. As you're praying that, there's a couple of things also I think you probably want to think about doing. So if you're going to pray about God helping you to be like Barnabas, what are you actually going to do to be like Barnabas? You know, if, that's, if, that, if it's treating each other like family, you know, like intermediate, like, uh, like uh, immediate family, not extended family, how, how are you going to do that this week? 
What are those areas of affluence like that you can leverage for the sake of the other people around you? If you're time rich, like how are you going to use your time this, this upcoming semester to make an impact in the kingdom? If there's some resources that you've got so you can make an impact for the kingdom, like what are you going to do to actually be like Barnabas? It's one thing to think that unity and sacrifice are great ideals. It's another thing to figure out how you're going to do it. So if we're going to be a church united, if we're going to be a church that treats each other like family, if we're going to be a church that lays down our lives for the sake of the gospel, if we're going to set aside our preferences and our stuff, we're going to subject all that under the name of Jesus, like, what are you going to do to be like Barnabas? I need simple questions. I need simple questions to help me just conceptualize what I actually need to do. That's a simple question. How are you going to be like Barnabas? Practically. I want to pray for you. Father, um, can we confess that we're not like Barnabas a lot. Yeah, we confess that um, <laughs> in, in, in our sinfulness, we, we care a lot more about our stuff and our calendar and our agendas and our preferences than, um, than we should sometimes. Yeah, we confess that. We repent of that. And we need your help to do something about that. So all the Christians in the room, God, I, I know we, we want to be people like Barnabas. We want to be people who love other people the way that he did and that's the way that you love us. That's the way Christ loved us. So, God, we, we ask you to, to, to help us overcome some of that selfishness, overcome some of that um, pride. And we also ask you to just give us practical ways that you'd bring things to mind practically where we can... We can do this kind of thing where we can, we can pursue unity practically by laying down our lives for one another, for the gospel, for the mission. Bring those things to mind and God, give us the boldness um, to actually follow through on those things. To do more than just agree that it would be a good thing to do. To, be, to do more than agree that it would be even essential to do. God, just help us to walk in obedience even when we're afraid, even when it doesn't make financial sense, even when our calendar seems too packed out, even when we're tired. God, help us to treat each other like family because you treated us like family. God, I pray that as our band leads us, that you'll just confirm these things in our heart, that you'll convict us where we need to be convicted. You'll encourage us we're going to be encouraged, that you'd give ideas practically how we can walk this out, that you'd guide us. We'll trust you with it. It's in your son's name, I pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as the man leads?